Welcome everybody to the CUHK Anthropology Podcast. My name is Tumi and uh, we're very happy today to be talking to Professor Ling Cheng, uh, who is from the Department of Anthropology at CUHK. Uh, Professor Ling Cheng received a doctorate from the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology at Oxford University. She was then a Rockefeller postdoc fellow in gender, sexuality, health and human rights at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. In January 2005, she began teaching at Wellesley College in the US. Her research is focused on sexuality with reference to sex work, human trafficking, women's activism, and policymaking. Her book, On the Move for Love, Migrant Entertainers and the US Military in South Korea, was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2010 and received the Distinguished Book Award of the Sexuality Section of the American Sociological Association in 2012. Hello, Celine, and, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tony. Thank you for doing this. This is exciting. It's the first podcast. Yes, well, thank you for accepting uh, our request. Uh, first our podcast for our department. You yes, know, like us marching into the digital age. That's 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 right. Now there's there's a lot to talk about, but I thought for starters, um, you could introduce your life history in anthropology, how you came to anthropology, and we'd like to know how your research has subsequently evolved. But but let's go back to to your roots in anthropology. My roots. Yes. <laughs> um, so I did my undergraduate studies as a sociology major at the University of Hong Kong. And when we were in the sociology department, we didn't know anything about anthropology. But um, Dr. Grant Evans uh, arrived and had this course called Introduction to Anthropology. And we were all like, what is this? And so a group of our friends said, let's sign up for this and see what it is about. And so that's how I started. Um, I, I really enjoyed the courses that, um, Dr. Evans taught. And therefore I decided to do an MPhil with him with a research on food culture and gender in Hong Kong. So that's how I started, and I got into the MPhil program, and I did my research, taking a um, a class perspective on on food practices, and I did the anthropologist thing of going into seven families of different socioeconomic class backgrounds, and followed them for at least a week, and I ate with them, I shopped for food with them, I watched them cook, I talked about food constantly with them, and wrote my thesis. Um, but as I was doing that thesis research, I was also interested in something else, and that actually, side that side project became my first publication ever. And it's on herbal tea shops in Hong Kong. Um, that came out in a book called, um, uh, Anthropology of a Metropolis, Hong Kong, I think, edited by, uh, Dr. Evans and, um, 
Dr. Maria Tam, who back then just came back from her PhD studies in Hawaii. Um, so yeah, that was my how I think I started as a researcher <laughs> in anthropology. Thanks, Yimin. Um, since you started in a sociology department, perhaps it's useful uh, for our listeners. If you could explain the differences between uh, anthropology and sociology. Ah, well, there are different ways to explain that, right? Normally, I would say, okay, let's go back to history and how sociology is a discipline that developed after industrialization and how um, there was a need to understand how societies were changing so fast with industrialization, urbanization, um, changing demographics and such dramatic ways of um changes of ways of life and how sociologists try to understand it um, systematically talk about do you take a functionalist approach or you know is society moving forward like an organism and every part is working with each other and whereas anthropology more or less developed with the colonial project um, working for those in power to understand um, the strange exotic peoples out there who the powers wanted to dominate. And before you dominate somebody, you need to understand them. And so anthropologists play that role um, in the colonial project. Um, so that's how one can explain this. But for me, it's really the approach of anthropology that appealed to me because uh, anthropology is often about immersing oneself in another culture. You learn their language, you eat with them, you, you, you do what they do in order to understand these others, right? Those things that at first glance look really strange and incomprehensible would become comprehensible and you would soon grasp their logic and the the reasons that people do things. So however strange and remote certain groups of people seem to appear to us, I think there is a hopeful note in anthropology that we have the capacity to understand people who are very different from ourselves. So that's what's called the ethnographic method, is that right? Right, that's the ethnographic method that you immerse yourself, you do field work, and you do participant observation uh, as the main mode of research um, and develop a, a kind of insider-outsider um, understanding of the group that you are trying to understand. So, so I suppose, hopefully, the outsider becomes the insider. I mean, with, with careful ethnographic study, um, um, I think you you can only become an insider in so uh, to a cer certain extent. You cannot never become fully an insider, mm. and in a way, that's the advantage of anthropologists that you have both the um, the outsider's view, the analytical point, as well as the insider's insight into a particular culture. So I think in anthropology, it's called the insider's view is called the the emic, 
view, E-N-I-C, whereas the outsider's view is the etic view, the E-T-I-C um, view from the outside. So if you have both, it actually allows you to develop a deeper understanding um, of a particular group of people. Thank you. That's that's very useful. So you have some distance as an outsider, and at least as an attempted, uh, with an attempt to be an insider, you you, you kind of try to understand uh, something from the from the inside. Uh, please, uh, you mentioned herbal teas. Uh, would would you do you recall? I mean, that's a while ago. Nineteen ninety seven. Wow. That's my first publication. Yes. Be, be, because I hear, yeah, one of your colleagues actually working on this topic. So uh well back then it was I did this research in the run up to nineteen ninety seven when Hong Kong was due to be given back by by the British to the Chinese and I observed that there was this sudden wave of nostalgia for things that are romantically Chinese. Mm. You know, romantically Chinese as in, you can't really pin down the exact historical moment that those things happened or where those artifacts were from, but you, you kept seeing them everywhere. And so, and herbal tea shops were one of these um, things that were going through this transformation from, you know, they used to, herbal tea shops used to have these tile walls that were really boring and have big fans up the ceiling and they look really plain and their major attraction was really the television sets that they had from the late 60s to the 70s. Um, it was still a, a luxurious commodity back then. But in the early 90s, there was this sudden transformation of herbal tea shops into these like they have phoenix and dragons and they come they were decorated in this red and gold decor uh, and this big urns like from a taoist um, temple that were all very curious to me this combination of things you know and big chinese character um, a big chinese calligraphy mm. uh, in the shop so I started to look into what this was about, and and basically I think my my argument back then was that um, because of this pending return to mainland China, there were there was a set of anxieties, mm. um, as well as excitement about this return, and so instead of you know claiming this Chinese. The, the Chineseness of contemporary China back then, um, Hong Kong people went through this time machine to go to a time unknown in order to embrace their Chineseness for the future. So that was, I think, that my argument back then. Um, so herbal drinking herbal tea shops became kind of trendy. Uh, no, drinking herbal tea and then having all these uh, desserts like sago pudding or sago coconut um, dessert uh, became a very popular consumer ritual almost back then uh, in the 90s. Hmm, that's, that's fascinating. Would you say that the herbal tea phenomenon is still around today? I mean, so I think it's, it's, you know, I think most of those herbal tea shops closed in the last 10 years. So you, you, you moved from, uh, 
food to essentially tea, uh, perhaps you can describe then, then, then what happens next in, in, your, in terms of your research. Yeah, um, how did I move from food to sex? That's right. <laughs> Um, in a way, it's kind of a natural progression, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, can see that. I can see that. It's all but very it, sensuous. But it wasn't. It wasn't that kind of um, extension. So I I planned for my PhD um, with a proposal uh, to research on Chinese medical uh, on Chinese medicine. Wow. In, uh, in Korea, because back then, you know, uh, in the March. March up to uh, 1997, Chinese medical practitioners were more or less regarded as quack doctors or unreliable and unscientific. Um, my thought back then was that there is going to be more professionalization of um, Chinese medicine. And South Korea uh, has a very well-established um, oriental medical training system to the extent that, for example, the, the, doc, the students who went to Chinese or oriental medical school would be given jobs by the government and so on. So I thought Hong Kong would have a lot to learn from the Korean system. So that was what my proposal was about. Uh, if your question was why Korea, um, back then I was doing a part-time job when I was doing my MPhil, and I worked at the Korean Consulate's Culture and Information section. So I was the one responsible for answering a lot of questions about Korea, and even though I knew nothing, so I had to look up everything. And I realized that, oh, that Korea is really interesting, because a lot of its culture has some... Chinese elements, some of it is like Japan, and back then there was late 90s, Hong Kong people knew virtually nothing about Korea, except for Korean barbecue. So I decided to do the research in Korea, and so Chinese medical training became the topic that I decided on. But then when I got a Korean Korea Foundation Fellowship to study with Korea, Korean language. So I went to Seoul National University for six months. And so I had to learn the language all over, you know, from scratch. But I was also hanging out with a lot of young university students. Um, and my language level only allowed me to speak to them about basic stuff, but also including boyfriends and girlfriends. And so um, I was in a coffee shop with two young men. They were like 21-year-old, and we were talking about virginity. And these young men were telling me how virginity was important and how it's not just women, but also as men. And, and back then, I debunked everything they were saying with my anthropological training. And suddenly one of them, about uh, after about two hours, one of them suddenly banged the coffee table. He was upset. He was upset. He banged the glass coffee table and said, in Korea, we are like this. So at that moment, that was a very pivotal moment, I think, um, because I realized that I could no longer say anything 
I was uh, silenced immediately as a non-Korean. So that moment also allowed me to consider the connection between nationalism and sexuality. Yes, yes, and in that one moment. Yeah, so it's that one moment. And so, yeah, that was it, basically. I, I then went to start my PhD at Oxford, and I arrived, and I met my supervisor, and I said, you know what, I don't want to do this research anymore. I want to do something on sexuality and nationalism. And, and he was a little stunned because he is he's actually Professor David Parkin, the director of the institute. And he said, okay, so give me a literature review in one month. I think three weeks, actually. So I almost didn't sleep <laughs> for three wow. weeks. So it was a, you, you, you were starting afresh, essentially. It was a change of topic. And you are not familiar with the existing literature, so not you at all. Just... no, no, no. It was uh, mm. it was intense, uh, but that's how I started to um, to work on sexuality. Wow, wow, wow! That's that's amazing because I had started myself uh, uh, intending to work on a PhD on Chinese medicine. Mm. Another wow. failed attempt. I wonder how many failed attempts at uh, uh, dissertations working on Chinese medicine. <laughs> yeah, I once told um, Professor Elizabeth Su, who's a medical yes. anthropologist yes. of China. and at Oxford. I, yeah, when I told her, she was like, why? <laughs> why did you quit medical anthropology? <laughs> So yeah, I know. I, I mean, I think that's what happens in life as well. That you know, you decide on one thing, and then something happened, and you went down a completely different path. Wow. <laughs> so, so, so talk talk us through this moment. I mean, you 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 know the the field is somewhat unfamiliar. It's a career. Completely so, unfamiliar. Um, uh, and it was interesting because at, so for pe for most people, food and medicine at least has certain conceptual connection, mm. right? Um, and so when I moved away from food research, some of my colleagues in food research actually said, you know, why are you moving into sexuality? People who do sexuality research are a little... You know, strange. <laughs> um, and I kind of agreed. I mean, they're different people. I feel like they're different people. Uh, so, but that's, that's how I, I ended up doing what I ended up doing. So I, I decided to do research on sexuality and nationalism. But at first, this well-crafted proposal on on sexuality and nationalism in Korea was actually about uh, Korean women working in different parts of um, different sectors of the sex trade in Korea. So I was thinking how about doing research uh, on women who serve the U.S. military clientele because they they occupied a particularly stigmatized position in South Korea. Um, even though they made good money, most of them were regarded as traitors 
to the nation because they、mm. were opening up their bodies to these foreign men and allowing the country to be invaded in another way, in a more intimate, personal way.、Um, whereas Korean women who worked for a strictly Korean clientele, even though they were also stigmatized, but they were not、um, considered. Betraying as someone who betrayed the nation, so that was how I, I my proposal started. But、um, when I went to Korea,、uh, I realized that around U.S. military camp towns, many of the clubs were hiring Filipinas and Eastern European women、mm. to work as entertainers. And so, of course, the initial shock was quite. You know, significant. I thought, you know, what am I supposed to do now? Do I write another research proposal?、Um, and then I worked with a local master's degree student to do research in the military camp towns to interview these Filipinas. And I always thought back then I would go back to the Korean women, but then it, I never did, and that's how I ended up doing research on the Filipinas in. Uh, around the U.S. military camp towns, especially because that was around 1999, 2000. That was the moment in the international arena when、uh, the language of human trafficking was gaining a lot of traction, and the United Nations Protocol Against the Trafficking in Human Beings was adopted in the year 2000. So. The kind of migration that these women was engaged in attracted a lot of attention, and many people were saying that, "Oh, this is trafficking. We have to stop it."、Um, but my own research actually showed that these women, most of them, did not want to be、um, sent back or rescued、hmm. by the authorities.、Um, there were a lot of love. Stories、uh, with U.S. soldiers.、Uh, many of them wanted to marry American soldiers, and so that's that's basically why my my book is called "On the Move for Love." That these、right. women are migrating,、um, sometimes for their families, for their children back home, but also for their own aspirations to move up. The world、um, and marrying an American man would help them achieve such dream, and so yeah, so that's how、um, I got involved in all these debates about human trafficking, about sex workers' rights movement, and so on. Wow, wow! So your initial、uh, objective to work on Korean women was. Subsequently abandoned was was this a result of maybe the changing global economic situation,、um, whereby whereby I I I I guess there was an increased migration of Filipina workers into Korea and East Europeans、yeah. as well. Is that yeah yeah this is like the global economic shifts right that、yes. um, economies that were developing、um, started. To reduce their labor costs by importing cheap foreign labor,、mm. uh, and East European women back then, you know, they just went through 
89. The collapse of the <laughs> Soviet Union. Oh. Right. And, and in the Philippines, uh, it has been reliant on mm. exporting their own labor since the 70s. Mm. And so it, uh, yeah, so there's that big global dimension to it. Um, but in South Korea, there's also the national dimension. Uh, South Korea as a post-war country after the Korean War in the 50s was very poor, war-torn, and so it was, it was very difficult economically. But, um, it became the 12th largest economy in the world in the late 90s. And that was quite amazing. And so with these kind of economic developments, Working in U.S. military camp towns were no longer attractive to many Korean women mm. because the, the soldiers were not making that much money, even though they were, you know, giving you U.S. dollars. Um, if you are going to be a sex worker anyway, you should just work for, you know, corporate <laughs> Korea, where there's the corporate budget for for the men to uh, buy women's company. Hmm. So so many women left the U.S. military camp towns, leaving the older ones there. And therefore, the clubs had to import these cheap foreign labor from Philippines and Eastern Europe. So that's the national economy um, evolving, and therefore there's this demographic shift in the people who work there. And so that obviously create a lot of tensions, right, between the Korean women and the Filipinas. And so that was also part of my research as well. But actually, my research eventually went back to Korean women. Um, as I, so this is the interesting story. So I was uh, almost finishing my research in 2000. I was asked to help with um, a Korean organization that worked with women in prostitution. Back then there was no word for sex work. Um, to participate in a conference for sex workers that was going to take place in China. So um, this organization was a coalition of various women's organizations concerned with issues of prostitution. And one of the oldest organizations was founded in 1983 uh, and is called Magdalena House. And I have the closest working relationship with them. Each country, each of the seven countries could send one sex worker, one activist, and one interpreter. And I was the Korean interpreter. So I, we participated. We went with this, um, Korean woman who was, um, in her forties, in her late, early forties. And she had been in the red light district for over 17 years. Right. And she had been, uh, working independently as a street walker for almost 10 years. And back then, Korean language did not have the term sex worker in it. I actually had to made it up mm. when we participated in the conference. And when we came back from that conference in early 2000, 
this Korean sex worker was so excited and she said, Oh, I am going to go back and go to the top of the tallest building in Seoul and I'm going to yell, I am a sex worker. Um, so she was really uh, excited. So we went back and then um, two months later, I got a call from the activist who also went to the conference and said, Oh, you know, this friend of ours was beaten up by a client. And I went with the activist to visit her and her workplace was also her home. It was a basement apartment in the red light district. And she was already, you know, doing the smart thing, which is um, to put some men's shoes outside her apartment. As you know, Koreans would leave their shoes at the door. To let the clients know that, oh, there is a man in the house, you know. Um, but unfortunately, he, he basically locked her up and sexually assaulted her and physically assaulted her for hours. So when I went to see her, she was, um, I had never seen anyone being so injured. Um, she was green and red and purple. One of her, her eyes couldn't open. Her whole body was bruised. And I was in complete shock. And I also asked a very naive question. And that was, did you go to the police? She shook her head and then the activist added, she can't go to the police. Because in South Korea, prostitution is a crime mm. for both the sellers and the buyers. But actually, the police would go after the sellers a lot more than the buyers. And so she couldn't go to the police. I think that was the moment. You know, that's another moment. That's the moment when I realized that criminalization of prostitution is not going to empower or protect the people in sex work. Mm. Um, I think throughout my research I I was I I was struggling with this particular issue because I, I went to a Catholic school for fifteen years, I taught Sunday school, I was I went to evangelical <laughs> Christian churches and I was struggling and throughout my field work but that moment I think I woke up and realize that, you know, all these talk about morality and so on is not helpful to the people who are actually most vulnerable mm. um, in society. Mm. And so I guess my journey on advocating for sex workers right, came there and then and there. <laughs> I, I suppose, yeah. Tiling, I, I think you... You raise an important point, right? If you regard sex work as work, then doesn't that immediately take it out of the realm of morality and immorality? Uh, so, so you're using yeah. words here uh, that that seem to have been thought through. Well, when we call it sex work, and we recognize these as workers rather than immoral or amoral people. Um, then immediately, you, you, you know, um, 
it would be very difficult to disapprove of what they do. Yeah, unfortunately, the pushback is huge um, because I think sex is, as Foucault said, <laughs> uh, a very powerful way to assert control. Mm. Uh, and because it controls not just your particular act, it controls your whole sense of values and your being and the way you carry up, you carry yourself. Um, and you start to police yourself each and every moment, <laughs> um, of what, where to exercise your sexuality. So I guess, I guess that's the hard part. And then governments rely on, um, retaining control on the population in this moment of neoliberalism you know everything is supposed to be free market uh, you're a free agent and therefore you should be self-enterprising self um, self advancing and so on except for sex right if you think about it sex workers are the most self-reliant self-enterprising people they they don't they don't rely on any company benefits. They don't um, count on, you know, any state training or, or so on. But they take care of themselves. They make money and so on. But interestingly, in this neoliberal moment, there is a backlash against um, sex workers. Um, but the language is not that, oh, sex work is bad. The language is, oh, these are all victims of human trafficking. They didn't want to be doing this. They are all just forced into it. And even when sex workers try to fight against anti-prostitution or anti-trafficking laws, those in authority would say they don't know what they're doing. They are being manipulated by the pimps. These women uh, are not really aware of what they are doing. Mm. So, so this is a very interesting paradox that yes. I observed over twenty years of research uh, and advocacy in this area. Mm. What interests do the proponents of neoliberalism have uh, in regulating sex work? It's oh, a heavy question, but no, 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 it's not. Um, the, the so you have to step back and think about the moment when Margaret Thatcher said, "Go back to your families," because the state is not going to support you anymore, right? So why the family? So suddenly the state, in trying to cut back its welfare system, um, state support. They have to have the families as the important site mm. of providing social support. And mm. what makes family, right? <laughs> so you, you need to be in a reproductive relationship, mm. ideally a monogamous and stable reproductive relationship. And if sex Sex is easily available as a form of uh, commodity outside of the family that could disrupt and divest the energies that should have been put into 
the maintenance of a family, right? So family is actually a, it has become more and more sacred in neoliberalism, if you think about it, and that's partly uh, why gay marriage has gained a lot of traction in different parts of the world mm. because that kind of coupledom serves the interest of the state mm. in a way, especially when you know now the ideal is to have. Um, adopted children or to have um, children through reproductive technology mm. uh, and so so that is the root of why a certain mode of sexuality is being celebrated by the neoliberal states that monogamous familial um, uh, respectable sexuality. So what you're saying is very interesting, uh, Sealing. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, a certain mode of sexuality is being celebrated by the state. But what you're saying is that this mode of sexuality could include homosexuality as long as it's monogamous. Right, yeah. So, so if you look at um, dominant LGBT activism, the, it has shifted from what 30, 40 years ago the kind of um, LGBT activism that is about oh let's challenge patriarchy, let's challenge uh, heterosexuality, let's like be free and explore is um, now is very much about yeah let's have the right to get married and have children and. Uh, we'll have a dog and, and be respectable. So this respectability has become um, sort of the the the, the yoke the yoke around which LGBT rights have been evolving. Um, so this this is the kind of sexuality that mm. is uh, valued, and therefore sex work, which involves the transaction of sex formally is exactly marking the boundaries or the limits of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is about, okay, everything outside of the family should be about calculation and advancement and making profits, yeah? So you do your thing. But inside the family, the family is where you don't count, you don't calculate. You love each other, you have um, children, and you remain a stable unit, and that that is ideal. And and sex is at you know should be preserved in this domestic sphere. Mm. But when you make sex worth money, then you are breaking that limit. Mm. You're violating that limit. Mm. And and so so in one of my publications on. Um, what is it called? I can't remember. It's paradox of neoliberalism or yes. something. Or, or virtuous rights. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but I, I evaluate the sex laws in South Korea, uh, that have been progressing with, on the principle of recognizing the sexual self-determination right of women. So, uh, they changed 
the law from violating chastity of women to a rape law. Uh, they got away. They got rid of the seduction law that made it a crime for a man to have sex with a woman on the premise that he was going to marry her, and then he didn't marry her. Hmm. That's a crime. Hmm. That's a crime that could be mediated if you married the woman. Hmm. All right. So marriage was a kind of punishment. In that regard, yeah.、Um, and then the the law about adultery.、Uh, so they got got rid of the adultery law,、uh, also on the premise of sexual self determination, right? So while all these laws were being amended, the anti prostitution law, in the name of anti trafficking. Uh, expanded.、Uh, it increased penalties. It increased the scope of acts that could be penalized, and so on. And that's a very interesting, you know, contradictory route, right? On one hand, you have this advancement of sexual self-determination, right? Yes. But sex workers alone do not have sexual self-determination right. They do not have the right to have that right. Hmm. And it makes you wonder why, right? Because everything else was promoted in this understanding that this is about increasing freedom. But for sex workers, for transacting sex for money, that is the quintessential unfreedom, and therefore needs to be punished and criminalized. And so、uh, my analysis looked at these. Laws and try to analyze the underlying assumptions of these laws. That's fascinating.、Uh, it seems like it's just full of contradictions and and paradoxes. Okay, m- maybe you can bring us back to to where we are now in Hong Kong. So, how did you actually、uh, you, you've 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 actually gone pretty far afield and and come back? You know, Oxford, the United States,、uh, Korea.、Um, How do you, how do you see your how do you locate your work now in Hong Kong? I could talk to you about sex a lot more, but I think <laughs> in the interest of time, and maybe we'll have another episode of this、uh, evening.、Um, I'm fascinated by what you've said about se- sex work, and you know,、uh, and indeed the sex worker as a new, as a perfect neoliberal subject, you know, yet not allowed to practice neoliberalism in the context of sex work. So that that is fascinating,、um, but. I think, in the interest of time, we should move on, and、yep. you, can, you can tell us how you actually、uh, came back to Hong Kong, and how do you now locate、uh, the research, and for our listeners too, you know, what does、yeah. anthropology has to offer in 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 Hong Kong? So、um, I I came back to Hong Kong in 2012 after having my first、um, kid, and then I. Took part in a project on、um, asylum seekers in Hong Kong and their health、um, situation, and that's how I got, you know, roped into、uh, the, my current project. So I've been doing it since 2012 on asylum seekers and refugees in Hong Kong, and so I have been focusing mostly on、um, asylum seekers from the African continent.、Um, And their intimate relationships in Hong Kong.
So I'm more interested in um, looking at asylum seekers not as suffering subjects or not as humanitarian subjects. You know, they're not just people who suffer. Of course they do. Uh, of course they have been marginalized uh, in a situation when migration has been securitized, meaning that they are these outsiders, foreigners are portrayed as threats to their whole society and are regulated as such. So uh, I'm interested in them as social beings. How do they live their lives in this uh, humanitarian space, uh, in this marginalized space in which where they don't have legal rights, they are not allowed to work, they are not allowed to study, they are not allowed to even volunteer. And so they have basically have no access to cash or no legal access to cash. They have no uh, way to improve themselves, so to speak, uh, as we do. You know, some of the people that I know, they've been here for 12, 13, 15 years, and they have no way to advance. I got probably three degrees in 15 years, and they had nothing. And so their lives are essentially suspended in this state. And the Hong Kong government has been increasingly hostile towards these asylum seekers, uh, especially with the new immigration or, uh, ordinance uh, amendment uh, a few weeks ago. And so lives have been particularly hard. I'm aware of all that, and I bear all that in mind in my research. But I also want to understand how do they live their lives as as human beings, as social beings. Yes. I think you and I all know uh, that despite the great mysteries and the great uh, unrest that we've been going through, we still try to live our lives. Mm. Right? We still have birthday parties, we still have friends, we try to get together, we try to do things that are fun because to, to prove that we're human beings, that we have a life that's a vitality that we insist or we hold on to. And I think it's that aspect of their lives that I am most interested in. Mm. Um, in one way that shows us even more how resilient they are despite their circumstances. So certainly what uh, what we've had to endure over the course of you know the past year is something that they've that it's something that's ordinary for them, right? It's something that they've had to endure ever since they became I, I guess they they've gone in search of uh they've become asylum seekers. Um yeah, yeah. So, so, so in the last year and a half with the, with COVID-19, we we're not allowed to travel. There was a lockdown. We couldn't, we felt that we couldn't do anything. And everybody was, um, traumatized <laughs> apparently by it. But you think that this has been the default condition for asylum seekers over the last 10, 15, 20 years. They couldn't travel, they couldn't do anything, they couldn't go anywhere. And unlike us, they don't even have, you know, a job 
or an income to make life more bearable. Um, they were not given masks initially um, by the government. Uh, and now with the vaccine, they were denied the vaccine initially and only given, you know, they are now asked to sign up for the vaccine when the government was cle is clearly aware that um, they might not be able to finish all their vaccines by their expiry date. Oh. So, in a way, it is good that, that asylum seekers um, have access to the vaccine, mm. but because they were denied and it was just flat, it was a flat no mm. in the beginning. Um, to suddenly now, you know, the government is trying to promote people to get vaccinated and, and now they are given the chance mm. a bit late in the process. When Hong Kong people have been reluctant, the asylum seekers were asking for the vaccine, but they were not given it until now. I, I think the asylum seeker issues must also be extremely complex, given that um, complex in, in, in a sense that these are like transnational issues. Uh, in, in your understanding, um, where has the system failed? Um, um, in your understanding, who could who could better serve or who could better attend uh, to this issue? Um, is it the government in Hong Kong where they are actually being processed, or you know, is there some transnational or multilateral organization that that is should be better responsible for the situation of asylum seekers? What? Where do you think the problem uh, lies exactly? I think um, I think the problem lies in the system of nation states mm. and the history of imperialism and colonialism that uh, impoverished or pulverized uh, certain peoples, mm. certain nations and pit their own people against each other and that created a lot of conflicts, a lot of um, inequalities and hierarchies that contributed to the instability in, in many parts of the world now and with the expansion of global capitalism on the foundation of colonialism. Um, many people also were forced to leave their homes, not just because they were out of a job, but also because their homes have become unlivable. When you think about the kind of climate change and environmental destruction that some people have been subjected to, and yet at the same time, Wealthy countries have been closing down their borders or securitizing migration flows, mm. um, de depicting foreigners or asylum seekers as fundamentally a menace or terrorist mm. who needed to be purged or contained. Um, 
So I I am not a believer of nationalism in the sense that I I think that nationalism has a tremendous destructive power to human lives、mm. and to human values.、Um, mm. But unfortunately, we the world seems to be. Going in a direction in which these sentiments are promoted and manipulated for the gains of those in power,、mm. and so I see a similar thing happening in Hong Kong that the policy against asylum seekers is unnecessarily、uh, being.、Uh, made harsher. And more grandiose、mm. than necessary because it is to show that this government has power and is strong and is legitimate.、Mm. And so this happens a lot, right, around the world. That when the when the governments are eager to restore its legitimacy, one of the best. And easiest ways is to target the foreigners, the vulnerable outsiders, who could be blamed, and and then somehow because we are harsh on them, so you can see that we are powerful and we are legitimate.、Mm. So I don't have a、uh, an answer to your your question because I don't think the solution is a is a singular solution.、Mm. Uh, but much broader historical forces.、Um, of course, you know, I in a in a utopian world, we shouldn't have the kind of national borders that、yeah. we have now, and that people should be allowed to travel freely.、Um, but this is not being talked about much right now. I mean, there's. The no border movement, it, but it's not creating a lot of noise.、Mm. Uh, but it's there. Well, that's again where neoliberalism doesn't apply. Right? Neoliberalism applies to the free movement of goods and services, right?、Um, but not people.、Right? No. Yeah. So that's that's another point where we can uh, challenge uh, the champions of neoliberalism.、Um, yeah, I I agree with the nation state as a problem. I was just talking about this to my students in class.、Uh, you know the problem of nationalism. Yet, yet, essentially, we are we have a world system that is built upon nation states,、um, and I, I, I guess it's reached its limits.、Uh, we can we can see the problems、uh, it, it brings,、um, but but yeah, I, I guess we are. We are groping for alternative conceptual vocabularies and alternative political systems, right?、Uh, yeah, yeah.、Uh, I think well, the world system you you talked about has a history of a hundred and fifty years. Um, yes. Um, and it's you know in the grand scheme of things, it's not very long. No. No. Um, but I think it can. As individuals, right? We we still have our we we can have our role to play. 
um, and anthropology, I think it has has is provides the tools for for us to be more empathetic, to be able to understand others, and to be uh, able to lay down or, or put down the stereotypical understanding that circulates in you know shaping differences and creating divides. Um, so I I think anthropology has this positive and hopefully transformative um, role to play in contemporary society. Well, th thank you, Ceiling. That that was. I was just going to ask you if you'd like to end on a, <laughs> a, a more hopeful note, and uh, you. There you go. <laughs> you ended uh, my question. So, I mean, there's so much more to discuss. Uh, thank you very much, Ceiling. I I hope to uh, continue this conversation with you in a in a future podcast. Thank you for the chat, Tony. That was great. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please join us next time when we speak to Dr. Wyman Tang. Stay tuned.